And once you've got that Bible out, let's turn to Romans chapter 4, if you would, uh, as I read our text uh, for this morning's sermon. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious, gracious to call us here this morning to sing your praise, to hear your word, to encourage one another, to love one another, to celebrate the ways in which our, our fellow members of the family of God are, are growing closer and closer to Jesus and to lament and pray for our brothers and sisters who feel weak, who feel estranged, who feel impotent. You have drawn us together as one body that the many parts here would lift each other up and serve each other well. We pray that we would not forget that. And we thank you, God, for your grace in making it so. We know, God, that there are uh, weighty matters in this text, and they are difficult. And they cut at the very heart I think of our rebellion against you. And so convict us by your word and show us more clearly who you are, what you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in a series, uh, five, four, five hundred. We are looking at the uh, five large principles that came out of the Reformation. On this, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We, historically, we look at October 31st, 1517, as, as the onset of the Reformation. That was the date on which Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg and probably other churches around the town as well. Uh, it wasn't something that came completely out of the blue. But it was like the fuel had been stored up and 
Martin Luther lit a match with that move, and the result is the Reformation as we know it. And so traditionally, we look at that date as the onset of the Reformation, 500 years. And so we're looking at some key principles that came out of that. By going back to Scripture, last week we talked about sola scriptura, the idea that Scripture alone is sufficient and complete and necessary for Christians, for life and for righteousness. And so we've grounded each of these messages in Scripture. I'm not preaching a theme, we are preaching Scripture that illuminates a theme. That same uh, monk... Martin Luther, he was an Augustinian monk, uh, was deeply troubled in the years before that act in Wittenberg. The, uh, the vicar general of Wittenberg was a man named Johann Staupitz, and he became a close friend of Martin Luther. Um, he was the one who encouraged Martin Luther to pursue his doctorate. He was the one who gave up his post as the Bible teacher in Wittenberg and installed Martin Luther as the Bible teacher of Wittenberg. Very close friend. But Martin Luther had a problem as a young man. He understood the church's teaching at that time that if he was a sinner, if he had committed sins, he stood unrighteous before God. More and more as he dwelt on this, he, he began to see God as this tyrant, as this judge who was hanging over him, a, a sort of dread and doom of, of impending judgment on his soul. And he understood the church's teaching that only those sins which he confessed to the priest could be forgiven. And so poor Staupitz, endured hour-long sessions, multiple hour-long sessions of hearing confessions from Martin Luther. Martin Luther would confess every possible sin he could imagine he would do, and sometimes he would finally leave hours later and then come running back to Staupitz to confess something else he had just remembered. When, when Staupitz would get angry with, with Luther uh, and, and, and tell him... Uh, that he, he needed to do something worth confessing. Stavis got so frustrated, he said, these are, are, are ridiculous sins you're confessing, Martin Luther. He says, go kill your mother, go kill your father, do something that's worth my time for you to confess. And then he had this fear that, well, maybe, maybe I'm not confessing because I'm sincere about feeling bad about what I've done. Maybe I'm confessing sort of only out of a fear of judgment. And so my heart is not in the right place. And I need to confess that. And so Martin Luther entered in these huge bouts of depression. He desperately knew the truth that there was a righteous and just God. And he desperately knew the truth that he did not deserve to stand before him. And these Two truths drove him to despair. Martin Luther did not stay there, of course. And we're going to look a little bit why he didn't stay there and why we don't need to stay there. Because Martin Luther was right. There is a just God. And we don't deserve to stand before him. But there is an answer. And so in Romans 4, verses 1 through 12, we will see that faith, and only faith, is the mechanism by which we are made right with God. And in Romans 4, Paul makes two broad points that demonstrate this fact. And after considering those two points, we're going to look at, I think, three implications. We'll see how my mind winds up breaking them down as we get into them. But three implications of this truth for us, that faith and only faith is the mechanism by which we are made right with God. 
So let's look at Paul's two points. And, and the passage breaks up nicely, verses uh, 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 12. And verses 1 through 8, Paul's first point is that Scripture testifies that Abraham was justified by faith. So let's dig into that. Paul begins with the story of Abraham, uh, whom he calls our forefather according to the flesh. Now, Paul is a Jew, a former rabbi, and he's writing to a mixed group of Christians in the city of Rome. By mixed, I mean that they are some Jews there and also some non-Jews, mostly Greeks. And Paul is speaking about himself and these other Jews in the conversation, and most Jews most Jews at the time were Jews by birth, as is the case today. Every once in a while you had a, an Ivanka Trump, you know, who would convert because of marriage or something like that. Uh, but by and large, most Jews were Jews by birth. And those Jews traced their genealogy or their biological lineage back to Jacob, uh, whom Brian uh, preached about a few weeks ago. And Jacob's father, Isaac, they traced their lineage to him, and then Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And this is why Abraham is called the forefather according to the flesh. Now you might wonder, why does he have to specify according to the flesh? Why does he just say he's our forefather? That's a great question, so hold on to it for a moment because it's going to become clear when we look in the second part of this passage. Paul takes us back to Genesis chapter 15. And to set the stage for a moment, uh, Abraham was not Abraham yet. His name was Abram. Abram means something like father of a people, and Abraham means something like father of many people. God would change his name uh, a few chapters later, but it doesn't happen here, but for convenience sake, we're just going to refer to him as Abraham. And in chapter 15, Abraham was old, and he and his wife had no children. And, and though the, the narration of some of the events of Abraham's life before this, if you look at them, um, we can reasonably conclude that Abraham has become amazingly wealthy and powerful. Although Abraham did not possess a city, he is pictured of, as quite capable of raising a small army, doing battle, and generally functioning on the level of a regional king. There weren't like nations like we think of nations back then, but you know, what we might think of as a city-state. You know, this king owns this city, and he goes to battle against that city. And Abraham's on that level. But he doesn't have a city. And Abraham is concerned in chapter 15 that all he had accumulated would simply pass to his servant, Eliezer. And we don't know how old Abraham was at this point. The next indication we have of his age, which seems to be close in proximity, but it's hard to know how much time has passed. He's 86. So he's younger than 86 here. Or at least he's on the young end of 86, where later he's on the old end of 86. But in a day and age when so many people died relatively young, whatever age he was, it was old. All right, so for, you know, 1700 B.C., whatever age Abraham was, it was old. So with this as the backdrop, God comes to Abraham in a vision, and he, and he promises Abraham a very great reward. And I, I wish I could dig into this. There's so much meat in Genesis chapter 15. There's so much time we could spend there, but that's a, a, it's a different sermon for a different day. Uh, so, but, but read it and soak it up, and, and maybe one day we will do a series through Genesis, and that will be fun. But um, God uh, promises him a very great reward. And Abraham's response is that he has no heir, no descendant. So what could God give him that would endure? It, whatever God gives him would just die with him, or it would go to Eliezer. There's no way to sustain his legacy. And God's response is that he would not only give Abraham a descendant, but that his descendants would be too numerous to count. And he makes a covenant with Abraham, which... Again, is another facet of that chapter so rich, and I wish we could dwell a bit there. But the key part for us this morning is that the text says that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, or counted to him, as righteousness. Righteousness is right 
standing. It's related to justification. They're more similar in Greek and Hebrew and I think even in Latin than they are in English. But, but justification is a process or mechanism of being found to be in right standing in, in someone's eyes. So, I mean, suppose you're, you're writing a paper for a, an English class. We've all, or most of us, have probably been in that unfortunate situation. And the instructor or professor returns the paper to you and, and says, uh, you know, uh, you, you write nicely, but your thesis is a mess. You, you cannot substantiate this. I mean, you're, you're way off base. You know, you're, you're completely wrong. You know, I'm giving you a C minus on this. And, and you're incensed. You're furious. You know, you're like, oh, I, I know that the, I, I researched this. I did good. Uh, my thesis can understand. So you try to justify yourself before the professor and you explain all the reasons why, you know, your, your, your thesis makes sense. And you try and help, help her to see what, what it was that you were trying to get at. And uh, hopefully, you know, as you are offering a justification for your rationale for your your thesis your your teacher agrees with your justification and if your teacher is in agreement with your justification you will stand justified and your grade will be changed if you have any history with this you know that that's unlikely though uh, uh, similarly, imagine you're, you're an engineer and, uh, and you miss a, a key deadline at work and management comes to you incensed about the missed deadline. And, and they want to know what happened. Why, why is this project not done? And it's possible you, you missed the deadline because of your sheer incompetence. But it's also possible you did your job very well and you may begin to offer a justification for missing the deadline. Perhaps... The deadline was unrealistic to begin with. Uh, perhaps uh, there were significant resources that were kept from your team that prevented you from missing the deadline. Uh, uh, perhaps other teams didn't complete their work on time that you depended upon, and so you couldn't get done your work in a proper amount of time. And, and, and if the facts of the matter are accurate, if they're true, and your boss is reasonable and intelligent, then you will be righteous before your boss. If your grounds are good, you'll be in right standing. If your grounds are not good, you will not be in right standing. You will be unrighteous before them. All of us make decisions in our life that put us out of right standing with God. It's called sin. So we are, in effect, not even in effect, we are unrighteous before God. Luther was right. What's remarkable is that this unrighteousness uh, is so pervasive, and yet this unrighteous man named Abraham trusts God's promise, trusts God's word, and on account of that faith, God considers Abraham to be in right standing. And it's remarkable in two ways. <clears throat> First, it's remarkable because Abraham was not objectively righteous. Abraham could not have justified himself before God. He could not be in a position like the engineer or like the English student who then offers up all sorts of justification and rationale for the way, the way he lived his life because objectively he had committed sins. Objectively, he had committed acts of treason against a holy God who rules the universe. And so the result of this is that any sort of off, uh, attempted justification of his own actions would have fallen flat. So the, that's the first thing. The first thing that's remarkable is that Abraham was, in fact, unrighteous, and he could not have justified himself. But the second remarkable thing is that God declares him righteous not on the basis of a past life of perfection, but on the grounds of Abraham's faith. God considers the faith, or counts the faith, or reckons the faith as righteousness. Whose decision was this? God's. So who justified Abraham? 
God did. So Paul calls him, calls God him who justifies the ungodly in verse 5. Paul elaborates that, look, if Abraham had worked at righteousness and had done all sorts of deeds to make himself great before God, to make himself righteous, God wouldn't have to do anything. God wouldn't have to credit the faith as righteousness. Instead, God would be obligated to recognize Abraham as righteous. In the, in the same way, if, if your English teacher simply gave a poor reading of your paper and, and they missed it, they missed your brilliance, when they realize their folly, they are obligated to fix the situation and give you a higher grade. And, and so if Abraham had something to his credit, then God would be obligated to, to fix his status before him. But no, Paul says, not, not before God. With Abraham, we have a, a man who is reckoned to have righteousness, not on the basis of a life well lived, but on the basis of faith. Paul says, if it had been on the basis of a life well lived, he'd have something to brag about. But the thought is horrendous to Paul. But not before God, he exclaims. How could a man ever have anything to brag about before God? Paul argues we can see the same principle from the life of David. He cites Psalm 32, where David talks about the blessing that is on the person whose sins are forgiven. We understand, we, you know, sure, if my sins are forgiven, that is a blessing. But specifically, David writes that his sins are not counted against him, using the same word that, you know, that, that Abraham's faith is counted as righteousness. And so there's, a, there's sort of a double reckoning that's going on here. There is a, a reckoning of sin, not to Abraham's account, not to David's account, and there's a reckoning of faith as righteousness to the account. So there's sort of a, a double reckoning going on here. And so the sinner who has faith is not considered to be a sinner, but rather is considered to be righteous. The sinner is justified by faith. The sinner is considered to be in right standing before God on the basis of faith. Paul's second point. That this justification by faith is available to all. And that second point can be summed up by Paul's initial question in verse 9. Where he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? If you're like me, there's, Paul just is overly casual about talking about pieces of flesh being removed. But we deal with it. Um, circumcision was the mark of the covenant God made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. All faithful Jews, heck, probably nearly all the unfaithful ones, had their sons circumcised as a mark and as a reminder of the covenant promises made to Abraham. It symbolized their participation in the covenant. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision was, if anything, probably the most important marker of whether you were a Jew or not. Um, it certainly was one of the most important markers. The religious leaders of the first century debated the Jewish law, and they debated what it meant to keep the Jewish law well. And it was very, very important, but they had many different interpretations. A Pharisee might look down on you for not keeping the law as well as they thought you should, but you don't get the sense that they would have thought of you as a non-Jew just because you were a poor law keeper. You were circumcised, you went to synagogue, you observed the Sabbath. These were kind of the biggies. Circumcision, that was sort of fundamental. 
It was important to be circumcised, and it was important to ensure your children were circumcised. It was a defining religious act that marked the Jewish faith community. So the circumcised is basically synonymous with the Jews. And the uncircumcised is basically synonymous with the non-Jews, or we might say the Gentiles. And so we could rephrase Paul's question this way. Is this blessing only for Jews, or is it also for Gentiles? And Paul's response, that it is for everyone, Gentiles included. And, and the rationale that Paul gives is it's really it's a model of careful biblical exegesis. So if you want to know how to study your, your Bible well, get your head around how Paul looks at the Old Testament here. What he says is he looks at the fact that Abraham was counted righteous before he was ever circumcised. He was circumcised in Genesis 17, but he was found righteous in Genesis 15. And Paul says, as a result, that the circumcision was a sign. And that's important because despite the fact that Jews might easily talk about themselves as the circumcised, especially in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul is writing, they weren't the only people who were circumcised. There were other groups, particularly in the uh, Near East, Middle East, uh, Northeast Africa, that also practiced circumcision. And that's probably not too surprising because Abraham had two sons, Isaac, but also Ishmael, who uh, wound up becoming the, the father of many of the the Middle Eastern uh, peoples. And Ishmael himself was circumcised. So it wasn't entirely exclusive. And Leon Morris, the um, uh, well-known Bible scholar, puts it this way. He says, it was not circumcision as such that was important. For in antiquity, other nations than Israel were circumcised. It was the circumcision given by God as a sign that mattered. This sign is further explained as a seal. In antiquity, a seal was often a mark of ownership, as when a man sealed property to show that it was his. But it was also a means of attestation. And it seems that this is the way we should take it here. God gave the sign of circumcision. And by doing so, he set his seal on the, in, on the righteousness imputed to the patriarch. Let's break that down a little bit. A, a sign is only important insofar as what it signifies is important. You ever notice that um, sign and signify are related words? I, mean, I, just, I never noticed that until I was like in my late 20s or early 30s. Like, whoa, those words are like the same. Um, <laughs> when I was 16 and taking a driver's license test uh, in Illinois, and I, I assume it's the same here, but maybe it's not, <clears throat> part of my test was that I had to be able to identify what certain roadsides, road signs signified, even without the words on them. Do they do that in Ohio? Like, so you get the shapes, you get the colors, and you should be able to know what the thing is indicating you to do. And that's important for a couple reasons, because one, you know, we tend to see things that are on the side of the road, it's in our peripheral vision, and, and you know, we'll pick up color and shape before we pick up words. Also, did you know that things with like a stop sign, you know, it's almost universal, it's almost an international sign now. And so that word stop can be localized, you know, and, and you still are obligated to stop even if it's in a different language. Right, so I mean, in theory, if there was uh, a, a part of southern Louisiana that was so French-speaking that they wanted to put the sign in, in French, they could do that. If there was a, a, a part of southwest Texas that was so Spanish-speaking they wanted to put the sign in Spanish, they could do that. You would still be obligated to stop. And so you, know, you had to be able to identify the fact that a, a red octagon with a, a white border it, it, you know, means stop. The sign signifies... An instruction. And so, whatever the word, if I see a sign 
that's shaped that way, I know that it's signifying that I need to stop. You could take a piece of scrap metal and you could stick it on the end of a pole and, and stick, it on the, stick it in the ground alongside the road, but it wouldn't be a sign because it doesn't signify anything. Unless it's modern art, in which case um, it doesn't signify anything important and we can easily disregard it <laughs> as an unimportant sign. But, but what Paul is saying, as Morris explains, is that circumcision isn't as important as what it points to. The sign only has value insofar as what it signifies has value. And so it points backwards in this case. The circumcision points backward to Abraham's acceptance by God on the basis of faith. It is a seal because it indicates Abraham's uh, acceptance as, as part of God's new people. It's a symbolic mark of ownership. In, in a way, and it's kind of icky to think about it this way, but it's very real. You know, if you buy a cow, it's yours. It's your cow. I've never bought a cow, but it's still, you know, it's mine. But, you know, like the, the cattle rancher often puts a brand on it so that other people know that the cow is his, right? And, and not branding the cow doesn't make the cow any less his. But the brand signifies ownership and whose ownership it is. And, and the circumcision kind of functioned in the same way. It didn't make Abraham any less God's, but it was an outward external manifestation of the fact that Abraham belonged to God as his unique people. So what matters here is the faith that God counted as righteousness, a faith that Abraham exercised and exhibited before he was circumcised. So in terms of biological ancestry, Abraham was the forefather of the Jewish people, but in terms of his character and what, his value, and what values he represents, Abraham isn't the father of all people who are circumcised. More properly, he's the father of those who are both circumcised and share in the faith that the circumcision points to. In fact, Paul points out that really that, that Abraham's being counted as righteousness before he was circumcised is an indicator to us that he's not just the father of those who are circumcised and believe, but also to all who believe without being circumcised. So that's why God, or that's why Paul uh, indicates in, in verse 1 that Abraham is our forefather according to the flesh, which seems redundant. As a Jew, he said, because he is your forefather by faith. If you're not among the circumcised Jewish population, but you share in the same faith that he has. In the same way, perhaps I come to an intersection that has no sign. Suppose uh, the wind has blown it away or an inebriated driver the night before smashed into it and the intersection was cleaned up. But recognizing the intersection and knowing the stakes of traffic moving through intersections uncontrolled, I nonetheless stop. That's sufficient, isn't it? I didn't need the sign there because I knew the intersection. I knew its demands. And so the sign became insignificant because I knew what it originally has signified. And so Abraham is really the father in a most meaningful sense, of all who have faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And so the promise of being justified by faith is available to all. Some implications of this. And I went back and forth in my notes. Is this really part of that previous point, or is this really one of the implications of it? I'll throw it out there as an implication. The first implication of this is that this faith must be faith alone. It must be 
as reformers said, sola fide. And I say it must be faith alone for two main reasons. I'm sure many Orthodox Jews would say that faith is an important component of righteousness, but they would likely say, with many other religious systems, that righteousness is also brought about by our good deeds. But first and foremost, the text of Genesis 15 and Romans 4 do not point to a single good work done by Abraham. There is not one single good deed or action that is pointed to in either one of those texts that he did that is laid out as part of his reckoning as righteous. The only thing that Genesis 15 and Romans 4 point to in Abraham is his faith. It is his faith alone that is mentioned as being reckoned as righteousness. Second, if his righteousness was coupled with his circumcision, we might expect the pronouncement of his righteousness to have taken place after the circumcision. But we don't see that, do we? There's no looking back on his faith and his circumcision for his declaration of righteousness. There's only looking back on his faith alone. There's no hint that God is as we might argue, if we want to get philosophical, we can say, well, God is outside of time. And God was looking down on Abraham's future circumcision. But there's no hint that any sort of philosophical uh, argument about God and his placement outside of time is being made here. And what's more, the text is very specific. It says he counted it as righteousness, as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. His act of believing God was counted as righteousness. And so, it is a justification by faith alone. A second implication is that there remains a divide. Luther discovered this, actually reading through Romans. Um, in an ironic twist of age, look, it sounds crazy, but Martin Luther, Augustinian monk, didn't spend a whole lot of time reading the Bible. Bibles were, were still being hand-copied, hand-written. They were a luxury item. Most people didn't have them. They didn't have easy access to them. One of the reasons why Staupitz appointed Luther to the post of biblical teacher in Wittenberg is that way Luther could study the scriptures for himself. So he would study the scriptures so that he could teach them. That would change very, very soon as uh, the, the printing press came online. Uh, Luther translated the Bible into German really solidifying the modern German language, and suddenly Bibles in the hands of all started to become a reality. But that wasn't a reality for Luther. And as he began to study the Scriptures for himself for the first time, he noticed something different. Whereas his whole life he had been brought up and taught up to believe that there was a just judge, and unless his righteousness, unless the, the imagery that was oftentimes used is, is a, a medical righteousness. There was a, a sense in which when God declared you righteous, it was a doctor's clean bill, bill of health. In other words, there's nothing left wrong with you. Everything has been set in order. There's no evil left in you. You're well. And as he read uh, Romans, it occurred to him that this does not seem to be what Paul is talking about at all. It's not a, a gradual increase of righteousness until we uh, get a clean bill of health so that we, we die and our, and our mortal sins are, are dealt with and put away and they've been properly confessed and so we are righteous before the eyes of God. Even less is there a, a place of purgatory to burn off our remaining sins so that we can receive the clean bill of health before God. 
No, he says, it seems like this is a righteousness that's not coming internally. This is a righteousness that is being imputed. It's being bestowed upon the person outside of anything they've done. And when he saw that he could be set right before God on the basis of faith alone, he had peace. And he had joy. And yet there remains a divide. In 1994, a group of evangelical thinkers and Roman Catholic thinkers got together to to think through how much agreement they had. It was uh, called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And the goal, as I understand it, it was multi-pronged, but was not necessarily to solve all the differences that exist between Evangelicals and Catholics. Rather, it was to find the points of commonality as a way to see where and how we could work together, particularly on social issues. Evangelicals and Catholics have a broad agreement on a large number of social issues. Now, Ten years ago, I'm mean, going to have had to say this, but I need to be clear on my terms. Um, by Catholic or Roman Catholic, I mean those Christians who are members of the organization that is headed by the Bishop of Rome, otherwise known as the Pope, who right at this moment is Jorge Mario Bregoglia, uh, better known as Francis. And by evangelical, and this is where I probably need more clarification, I mean Protestant in the most historically meaningful sense of the term. Because it's kind of become coin of the the realm in the media today to think of evangelicals largely as a white, politically right-wing American religious movement. And that's not what I mean when I say evangelical. Um, I mean by evangelical those Christians who are committed to the core tenets of the Reformation. Uh, particularly to those uh, tenants that we're examining in this series. That was, by the way, the original sense of the term when it was developed in 16th century Germany, and it's held large, uh, long and great value in the church uh, over the ensuing centuries. Um, However, the, the modern sense of the word evangelical, particularly as it's used in the public sphere and the media, is quite different from that. Um, and maybe we are radically or rapidly arriving at a time and place where we need to find a, a different term uh, because the old term evangelical maybe has more confusion uh, than it's worth. But for now, I'm using the term. And, and when you take it with this meaning, one can be black and be evangelical. One can be Hispanic and evangelical. Chinese and evangelical, a Democrat or a Republican and an evangelical. What, what matters is that you hold to certain key tenets about the evangel, the gospel. So, so we're clear when I'm using that term, that's what Chris means. Um, and it's almost always what I mean when I use the term. Evangelicals and Catholics together were able to agree that salvation is by grace, through faith, on the merits of Christ. One evangelical scholar who was a signatory of this document, J.I. Packer, Jim Packer, a leading evangelical thinker, however, stressed that this document doesn't say everything. That he nonetheless, though he signed it, could never be a Catholic because there remains a fundamental and fundamentally large gap over a number of issues, not least of which is the word alone. See, evangelicals would say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. And in the sense that thoughtful evangelicals mean that, it goes too far for the Roman Catholic Church. And I say Roman Catholic Church because I think this is a point that people don't often understand. Um, because many individual Catholics, including many priests, have become very Protestant on their thinking about these issues. Again, these aren't the only issues, but they do remain fundamental ones. But the official position of the Catholic Church, the church, 
has not been altered. And since the Roman Catholic Church Council in the 1960s called Vatican II, probably heard of that, the Catholic Church has definitely softened its language toward Protestants, and it's become much more conciliatory. But it's not altered its fundamental stance. So we agree with Catholics that salvation is by grace, and probably even agree that it's by grace alone, although we might not quite mean the same thing by that. That's a topic for next week. But we disagree whether the justification necessary for salvation is by faith alone. The Catholic position is that salvation is by grace and mediated through faith and the sacraments and other good works. The Protestant position is that salvation is by grace and mediated through faith alone. And the upshot for this is that for, for Catholics, just for example implication, is that an infant receives justification from God through baptism, but that if that person who is baptized commits a mortal sin, that person loses their justification, loses their right standing before God, and can only be restored through what is popularly known as penance or confession or reconciliation. On the contrary, the evangelical position, the historically Protestant position, the position I think that Paul is taking in Romans chapter 4, is that God graciously counts our faith as righteousness. And that like Abraham, who was marked off as God's own position, possession, we are God's. And he will hold us fast. And we cannot lose our right standing before God precisely because of the object of our faith. Let me explain what I mean, but the object of our faith. See, if, if our faith is in something temporary, if our faith is in, is in something impermanent, then perhaps that sort of faith could fall. But our faith as Christians is not in something temporary or impermanent. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ and his work. And Christ and his work are complete and they're final. And so we do not stand condemned. We've rebelled against our creator. Justice demands a state of rebellion be punished. Luther understood that. We committed an infinitely grave offense against an infinitely great creator. And as a result, we deserve an infinitely great punishment an eternity apart from our maker in hell. But God nonetheless loved his creation, even though it was a creation in rebellion. As so he takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and those sinless died on the cross, in that act he took on sin on himself, and the wrath of God for sin was poured out on Christ. And so God's justice and his love were married and satisfied perfectly on the cross. And Jesus rose again because death and sin could not defeat him. And those who trust him and his sacrifice have their sins forgiven on the basis of what he did. So no sin of mine changes the fact that Christ died on the cross and that Christ could say, it is finished. No sin of mine, no matter how great, unfinishes the work of Christ on which I have placed my faith. If Christ's grace on the cross was infinite, then I will never find myself lacking in justification. I will never find myself lacking in right standing before God because my right standing is not on the basis of what I have accomplished and done or not done as the case might be, but it is accredited to my account on the basis of faith because of the merits of what Christ has done. Fourth message in our series. That will never run dry. It will never run out.
And so, make this impl- I'm going to reverse these. Make this implication number two, or implication number three, because I made a new. So there's going to be four implications. So, implication number three you don't need to worry if you're in Christ about your standing before God. Now, if you're not in Christ, you have reason to worry. But if you are in Christ, you need not worry. Because the well of the riches of Christ's grace on the cross are not insufficient for your sins. They will not run dry. The metric, the measure, the the mechanism of how we access that grace uh, does not change. The rules of the game do not change. And so... If we have a saving and abiding faith in Christ, we are forgiven, we are righteous, we are clean. And we look at ourselves and we know. If you are a Christian, you understand this, you know you feel a despair of of the despicableness of your own sin and your own wretchedness. And, And yet God looks at you and he sees the blood of his son and he says, righteous. Mine, forgiven. So, the the reformers would say that we are simultaneously just and sinner. After a few years, Luther went further and he said, we're always, he said, semper, always just and sinner. At all times, the Christian is both horribly wretched and amazingly just. Not because of anything I've done. If anything I could do would cause me to lose my righteousness before God, then it would say something, I believe, quite profound about the weakness of Christ's sacrifice. But if Christ's sacrifice is great and he will hold me fast, then that is a tremendous grace. And I no longer need to fear a just judge who rightly can punish me of my sin because I know that he won't on the basis of what Christ has done for me. And so we can as the uh, uh, author of Hebrews says, boldly go before the very throne of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, the one who tore the veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place in the temple, in the tabernacle. And so we have peace. For the Christian, for living in grace, what the the significance for you is, if you are a Christian, if you have this, this abiding trust in the work of Jesus Christ, then when you sin, your response is to go right back to the well of that grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the Christian's life is, is sort of a, a clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. It, it's where we are cleansed. It's where we're renewed. It's where we're strengthened. Our whole life is centered at the foot of the cross. There's a temptation in some Christian circles to, to sort of get the cross, get the gospel as the starting place of the Christian faith. And then, oh, we need to move to deeper, bigger things. No, no. You never have moved past the cross. As soon as you've moved past the cross, you show you never understood the cross. We live and we breathe and we die. We want We want the wounds of our Savior to constantly pour down over our head a cleansing flood of grace. Fourth implication. 
That being said, justification by faith alone does not obviate repentance or good works. Criticism thrown at those who uh, would uphold a high view of salvation uh, through faith, justification by faith. You say, oh, well, well, if nothing you do matters, then you'll live your life any way you want. No, not true at all. But Paul deals with that exact objection in Romans chapter 6. Strange that we keep fighting it. But it's right there. But the, the exact opposite is true. Let, let's, let's touch uh, repentance. And, and first of all, repentance and faith are really same, uh, two sides of the same coin. You don't get one without the other. We turn away from sin, that's repentance, and we turn to Christ, that's faith, that's trust. All right, we've talked about this before, but generally in Scripture, generally in Scripture, when they talk about saving faith, when they talk about the faith that we have in Christ, there's really there's a, there's a two-edged sword there uh, that's both believing, it's intellectual assent, I believe that certain things are true about Jesus, what he did and who he is, and faith, or trust. So faith, you could say, is belief and trust in the biblical sense. And so it's not just accepting those things are true, but being willing to rely upon them. There's a personal connection to them. And when we, we have that sort of, uh, of place, then we, we cannot, you cannot turn to Christ in faith without recognizing, accepting, part of that faith is accepting that you are sinful and it's not the way he desires you to live. And so repentance is, is intertwined with it. You cannot be saved by a faith that doesn't include repentance. That's not biblical faith. But what's more is a person who grasps hold of the cross of Christ by this sort of faith which justifies is forever thankful, is forever grateful, and, and forever moved to love of this Savior. And the upshot of that is they can't help but do good works. They're not, the, 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 see, the, the, the mechanism has changed. You're, you're, you're not doing good works to make yourself right before God. You're doing good works because you've been made right with God and you're so thankful and in love with this God that they pour out and you're moved by his spirit who dwells in you to do more of the same. And so rather than justification by faith alone obviating good works, it actually heightens good works. Because, think about this, if you're, if you're doing good deeds in order to make yourself right before God, in order to be accepted, there's a selfish motivation in there, isn't there? It's not a very pure act. You know, um, I mean, it's like when you're first dating a girl, you know, or, or a guy or whatever, I don't know, I haven't done that, but... Uh, when you're dating a girl, you know, you, you bring her flowers on the first date or whatever. Like, yeah, it's nice and it's genuine, kind of. But also, like, you're trying to curry favor with them, right? You know? Tell you what, like, here, here's the good one. It's like, oh, man, I'm going to call myself out. It's like if you, buy your, if, you, if you buy your flowers after you're married, which I haven't done in a while. Um, if you buy your flowers after you're married, you've got nothing to gain, right? That's, now, that is... That's sweet, right? Because there, there's nothing, unless you're in the doghouse and you're trying to fix it, that's different. But if it's just because, like that's a genuine act, but like when it's like the first or second date, you bring five, let's face it, on some level, it's because you're trying to curry favor, right? And it's, something, it's like that with our good works too. If we're trying to do good deeds to put ourselves in a, in a right place with God, there's a selfish aspect of that. But when we're wanting to do it because of an overabundance of love and thankfulness, seeking to gain nothing, there's a purity to that. That is a sweet good work. It is a, is a good work that is to be prized far above the alternative. But we as Christians, even now, even who are in Christ, 
we are, I think we are always tempted to abandon faith alone. And we need to watch our lives. Because this, this pull to make ourselves right before God is strong. I, I think it's the, in some ways it's the fundamental idolatry. And you can see it across all the world's religions. And it pulls in our own hearts as well that we need to make ourselves right before God. Embrace His grace. Embrace the truth that He tells you in Scripture that by faith you have been made right before Him. Let fear be removed from your heart. Stop living in anxiety about whether you measure up. Let your clouds of depression be lifted from you because you are rescued. You are right before God. And from that place of peace and joy, let your good deeds overflow. So four implications. Three theological, one practical sort of theological Brothers and sisters, faith and only faith is the mechanism by which we are made right with God. When we grasp hold of this, then it changes so much in our hearts. And for those of you who have not yet recognized this, I'm telling you, there is a, there is a Christ who died. There's a Christ who died, and, and he says, trust me and trust my work and trust and know that through me, I'm the only way. I, I can set you right with your creator. I can remove your sins from you and, and by my blood on the day of judgment you'll be looked at despite your wickedness and your filth and your wretchedness and, and, and righteous, just, innocent will be the pronouncement. And you'll enter into the bliss of your maker. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, Confess too often I forget your promises. Your promise is almost too hard to believe sometimes. That by faith, by trust, that we might be drawn near to you and might be brought into a right relationship with you to be called righteous, even knowing that all the things that I've done. Forgive me, forgive us, God. That we don't grasp hold of your promise as we ought. Move in us to be satisfied by the finished work of Christ. And from a newfound love of our Savior. Pour out of us good works, God, to serve each other, to glorify your name, to bring worshipers to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is the first Sunday of the month. We are going to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Lord's Supper is a holy meal in which we, we look back. It is a sign. And what it signifies is of great importance. The death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul again writes to the Christians living in Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But we are judged by the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Jesus instituted this meal uh, as the last meal with his disciples, and he instituted it for his entire church. And so we invite all those who have turned to Jesus in faith and incorporated into his universal church to enjoy this celebration uh, with us. And if you're unsure if that's you, if you don't know what that means yet, that's okay. This, the, this pass, no one will pass judgment on you for setting this one out. But let's take a moment to reflect on our sinfulness, confess those sins to our Savior, consider the price that was paid for those sins on the cross, and after a few moments, I'll, I'll pray for us uh, on our behalf, and we'll uh, together celebrate the meal. Father, we confess that we are sinners, saved by your grace indeed, but nonetheless sinners. We have taken your name in vain. We have worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We have dishonored our parents. We have ignored your call for our goodness to rest. We have hated and so murdered. We have lusted and so committed adultery. We have coveted and so we have stolen. Forgive us, God. Thank you for the blood of your son which covers us. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. May he come soon, Lord. Amen. As you're able, as you're willing, as you're ready, uh, come forward, uh, break off a piece of gluten-free bread, and uh, grab a cup of juice, take it back to your seat, and consume the elements, and then we will celebrate by singing some more in worship.